Luke chapter 17. Luke 17. Last time we looked at verses 11 to 21 and the healing of the ten lepers. Now we're going to look at some of Jesus' teaching about his second coming. And some of it is unique to Luke, and some of it is overlap with other Gospels, especially with Matthew 24, and we'll look at those when we get there. But let me just read our passage this morning, starting in verse 20, Luke 17, verse 20, down to the end of the chapter. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And he said to the disciples, The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, Look there, look here. Do not go away, and do not run after them. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation." And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building, but on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. Likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, and the other will be left. And answering, they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Well, the first two verses kind of stand alone. Jesus is questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming. It says, he answered them and said, verse 20, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, the kingdom of God is a very important term in the Gospels, especially in Luke. It's used at least 32 times, and almost always on the lips of Jesus are talking about what Jesus is doing, his proclamation of the kingdom of God. The question then about the question here is, what kind of kingdom are the Pharisees asking about? Now, we already know that the Pharisees in the main did not believe in Jesus. They did not think that he was truly the coming Messiah, the son of David. And that's the only king a a Jew would really be looking for, right? The son of David, the king, to set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. So we expect they're looking for an earthly kingdom where a son of David would sit again on the throne in Jerusalem and they could be rid of the Romans once and for all. And those promises of glory they had from the Old Testament, the glory of the kingdom, would, would prevail in their day. Now, Jesus here corrects their false understanding. He says, it's not coming with signs to be observed, or literally, it says, with observation. The the word signs is not in the text, but it's an interpretation based on the 
particular translators of, of the New American Standard, in my case, yours may say something different. In any case, it's not something that we will be able to see by looking for it, the kingdom of God that Jesus is referring to here. There is, uh, speaking of our day nowadays, there, there is another kingdom coming shortly, in a sense, isn't there? We have a, a new king of England who will be crowned, and there will be all sorts of splendor and majesty, and probably a lot of you may watch it, or the, the world will be watching, probably millions and millions of hundreds of millions of people are going to watch the coronation of a new king of England. But the kingdom of God is not going to come in this way, at least not the first coming. The coming of Christ didn't come with him uh, being uh, crowned as king, but he came in obscurity into a small village in Israel. So Jesus says this kingdom is not going to come with these great signs, this great pomp, this great splendor, but it's going to come in a different way. They will not say, look, here it is or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst, or some translations will say within you. And again, there's a kind of an ambiguity in the translation here because it's hard to know whether it means within you, that is within a person, or among you, that is within a group. Depending on your translation, it may say within you instead of the kingdom of God is in your midst. So that could mean either the kingdom of God Jesus is talking about here is internal and spiritual, which is true in a sense, or it could mean the kingdom of God is already here with you. That is, the kingdom of God is in the in this area where the, the Pharisees are and indeed in the area of Israel. I think it's probably the latter. So Jesus, yes, there is an internal kingdom, but it's not what Jesus is talking about here. I think he's talking about the kingdom that came when he himself came to this earth. And I think that mostly because he's talking to the Pharisees. I don't think he would say to the Pharisees, the kingdom of God is inside you personally, because they did not, again, in the main, believe in Christ. One difficulty when you talk about the kingdom and when it comes is that it has phases. So if I ask you, has the kingdom of God come yet? You could say, yes, or Yes, in the past, yes, in the present, or not yet. So if somebody asks about the kingdom of God, you say, well, what, what phase are you talking about? What, what part of the kingdom of God are you uh, asking about? But I think it's easiest, we've talked about the kingdom many times in this series over the years, I think it's easiest to understand the coming of the kingdom of God by asking, where is the king? Right? The kingdom is where the king is. And so when Jesus comes to the earth, the kingdom is there. When Jesus comes in the future, the kingdom is there. When Jesus comes and reigns in somebody's heart, the kingdom is there. So whether it be in the past, whether it be in the present, when somebody believes in Christ, or whether it be in the future, when Jesus comes back, as we'll see later in this passage, all those things are the coming of the kingdom because Jesus is the king. A couple of verses stating that the kingdom was already there in Jesus' time. Let me just read to you Mark 1, 14 and 15. Jesus says, came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand or has come near. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then earlier in Luke, Luke eleven twenty, Jesus says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So the kingdom came when Jesus started preaching uh, in, in his ministry and when he was casting out demons as well. It was proof that the king was there because the king was casting out the, the angels of Satan. 
Look at Luke 19, another aspect of the kingdom where the disciples were anticipating it's still coming. Jesus talked about the coming of the kingdom, and so the disciples asked questions from time to time. Look at Luke 19, verse 11. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So the disciples thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right then. And then look at verse 38. This is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem a few days before his crucifixion. We have this crowd shouting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So we have the people anticipating the king coming. In fact, they say, he's now here. He's coming into Jerusalem. He's riding this donkey. Look at Acts chapter 1. So back before the crucifixion, they thought the kingdom was coming. Acts chapter 1, this is after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And now they're wondering. Acts 1 verse 3. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning what? the kingdom of God. So Jesus starts talking about the kingdom when he arrives in in, in his ministry, and now he's still talking about it as he's about to go back to heaven. And verse 6 says, When they had come together, they were asking him, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, And you should be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. So now that Jesus has, they think, has finished his work, he's been uh, killed on the cross, he's been raised now, maybe this is the time for the resurrection, or for the the kingdom to come. And Jesus puts them off and says, it's not time yet, right now you have to be my witnesses. So even in this time around the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, and just after resurrection, the disciples had this thought about the kingdom coming, but again, it's a not yet reality. In fact, it's in the future. Jesus says in Luke twenty-two sixteen, when he is partaking of the Passover meal and <clears throat> using that as as a, a establishment of the Lord's Supper, he says, "I say to you, I shall never again eat it. That is the Passover meal until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God." So that is still future. Luke thirteen twenty eight. Jesus says in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being thrown out. Again, still a future reality, this kingdom. Let's go way back to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. It doesn't mention the kingdom of God per se, but I think it gives us the idea here. <clears throat> And this is when Gabriel is speaking to Mary, and Gabriel says this, verse 32, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So even before Jesus is conceived, this promise of his kingdom was there, but it is in the future, and he will reign forever on the throne of his father David. Now, the kingdom of God is a place, that is, a place where you can eat, where you can fellowship, where Christ is, but it's also a message. 
And as I looked at the term kingdom of God in Luke, I found some interesting things. It's, in fact, it's synonymous with the gospel. The kingdom of God is used as a term for the gospel because what is the way to get into the kingdom? It's through belief in the gospel of the kingdom. So Jesus said in Luke 4, 43, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. And Luke 8, 1, Jesus says Jesus began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. And even Luke 9, 2, Jesus sends the 12 out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. So the kingdom of God is a message. It's also a place. The message is the way to get into the place, the kingdom of God. It's the gospel of God is the preaching the kingdom of God. So when you are preaching the gospel, you are preaching also the kingdom of God to those who need to hear it. Well, back to our passage in Luke. Jesus is saying here, I think, in verses 20 and 21, don't look for amazing signs to see the coming kingdom. Remember the Pharisees kept asking Jesus to perform signs. Don't look for those signs to see the kingdom coming. Don't look over here. Don't look over there. Look at me. The king is right here. The king is in your midst. If you want to find the kingdom of God, look no further than myself. Well, Jesus has spent some time in verses 20 and 21 talking to the Pharisees. Now he's going to talk to his disciples. And Jesus speaks to his disciples about his coming. Verse 22 He said to the disciples that days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. For they will say to you, look there, look here, do not go away, and do not run after them. Sounds somewhat similar to what he's just said to the Pharisees. They will say, look, there it is, or there, look, here it is, or there it is. But Jesus now shifts from the current kingdom, the the present kingdom in Jesus' day, to the coming kingdom. And he talks about the days of the Son of Man. And this is Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. I didn't count, but there's dozens and dozens of times Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. But the roots of this go back way to the book of Daniel. Daniel 7, especially Jesus as the Son of Man coming in great power and majesty. Listen to Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel says this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. The Ancient of Days, of course, is the is the, the Father, God. And to him, that is the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Sounds a lot like what we just read in Luke chapter 1, when Gabriel spoke to Mary. That's the same person, the same kingdom, this everlasting kingdom given to someone by the Father. This Son of Man is one who has an everlasting kingdom. This is a kingdom that no mere man could ever possess. David couldn't possess it. Solomon couldn't possess it. No mere man could keep a kingdom from God the Father forever that will never pass away and that will not be destroyed. Every earthly kingdom will someday be destroyed, won't it? But the the rule of Christ will never be destroyed. And so when Jesus is referring to himself, himself as a son of man, I think he's alluding to this passage in Daniel chapter 7. And he's telling us now, 
back to Luke 17, be careful about looking for my return. You will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. There are some who are so eager they might be fooled. They will say to you, look there, look here, do not go away, and do not run after them. And there are stories in church history of those who have been told that Jesus has come back. Let's go find him. Let's go follow this man. And it's been a false Messiah. But Christ is saying, don't be fooled by this. Uh, He'll say later in Luke 21, see to it that you are not misled, for many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is near. Do not go after them. There's also a parallel in Matthew. And this is placed during Passion Week. Matthew 24, verses 23 to 36, 26. If anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, or do not go out, or behold, he is in inner rooms, do not believe them. So Jesus is saying here, don't be deceived. People will tell you that I am the Christ that that, or that they have come back and they are Jesus Christ, but they are not him. And Jesus will explain next how we know it is him. And he'll compare his coming to lightning, verse 24. Just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. And Matthew says something similar. So this coming won't be like the dawn. If you ever wake up really early and you, you sit and watch the sun come up, you see... It's really dark, and then you see this gradual light, and then eventually the sun comes up, and after some time, it's fully light. Jesus' coming is not gradual like that. It won't be like the dawn where it gradually gets lighter. The coming of Christ will be like lightning. It will be sudden. It will be unexpected. It will be brilliant and unmistakable. Jesus mentions here, the Son of Man coming will be in his day. I think that's a reference to the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that often in the scriptures, and we don't have time to trace that right now, but just listen to 1 Thessalonians 5.2. Paul says, you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. The thief comes in and takes his things and leaves suddenly and quick, quickly as he can. That's what Jesus' coming will be like. But there's something before his coming, and there he has a prediction of his suffering, verse 25. First, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So something needs to happen before Jesus has his day. He must suffer and be rejected. And it's interesting, I think, that Luke has more of Jesus' predictions of his suffering and death than any other gospel. And there's at least six. I won't go through them all now, but there's one. For example, Luke 9.22, Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. So in Luke 9, he says he's going to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And then in Luke 17, he says he's going to suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So we have the the leaders of the Jews. We have the, the Jews in the main, a large portion of the Jews. Also in Luke 18, Jesus says this, verse 32-33, He will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. So Jesus, the Son of Man, will suffer and be rejected by Jew and Gentile, elite and commoner, great and small. The 
all levels of society all around the world will be rejected, the Christ will be rejected by them as he's sent to the cross. So his first coming was missed by the world as a humble baby to an obscure Nazarene couple in Bethlehem and to suffer and be rejected and to be judged by God on behalf of his people. But his second coming will be in great power and glory, like lightning. It will be seen by the entire world, and he will deal out judgment. So in the first coming, Jesus was himself judged. In the second coming, he will be the judge. We have a comparison now to Noah's day. Jesus is continuing his discussion about how to be prepared for his coming and what it will be like. Luke seventeen twenty six. Just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. And Jesus also mentions this in Matthew 24. You might remember that the people of Noah's day were exceedingly wicked. Remember Genesis 6, 5? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 7, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. So we have this large group of people around the world that are so evil, God wants to destroy them. There's only a handful that are saved by the ark. And these wicked people in Genesis 6 and Noah's day were unaware of the coming judgment or else they were unresponsive to Noah's preaching about the coming judgment. You might remember Second Peter 2.5 calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. So whether by his life or his speech or both, Noah was a rebuke to the people of his day, at least those who, who were around him, who saw him building this ark. But the people didn't pay attention. They just lived their lives doing ordinary, even good things, marrying, eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage. Those are all good things. Until it started raining, and it was too late to enter the ark, and the world was destroyed by water. You can imagine being somebody who had heard Noah teach, who had heard Noah preach against the evil, and had seen him build this ark, and you're laughing at him, scoffing at him, or ignoring him. And then the rain comes, and you look to the ark, and what does the ark look like now? Had all the door open, and the animals going in, Noah and his family, and what's the door look like now? Shut can't get in too late. You could pound all you want on the side of that ark, but you will not be redeemed from the flood that is coming. It's too late to enter the ark. The world is destroyed by water. And so these people were so caught up in living their normal lives, they missed the doom hanging over them for their great sin. Well, Jesus also compares his coming to Lot's day, not only Noah, but Lot. Verse 28, it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking. They were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Now, we know about the wickedness in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's uh, well well known. Genesis 18.20, the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. In Genesis 19, 12, and 13, remember that angels have come. They, they speak to Lot. Whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place. Because your outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. 
So it's much the same lesson as in Noah's day. God is judging Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin suddenly and terrifyingly. He's saving just a few from this cataclysm. And they may have had some idea in Sodom and Gomorrah of God's displeasure through Lot's example. Genesis 19, verse 9, the people of Sodom are telling, saying to Lot, this one, that is Lot, came as an alien, and already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they may have already known about Lot's desire to be pure and may have hated him for it. And Peter speaks of Lot this way, Second Peter 2, 7 and 8. He speaks of him as righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For by what he saw and heard that righteous man, again Lot, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. So we don't know how much Lot actually spoke to these people, whether he was just an example by his, his righteousness. Whatever the understanding of these people from Sodom and, and Gomorrah knew of their precarious situation, they didn't repent. And once the fire and brimstone started, it was too late to escape. Genesis 19 24 and 25 speaks of this judgment. The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone, that is burning sulfur, and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. So God destroyed the whole world in Noah's time. He destroyed the whole area. There's this sort of valley, the cities of the plain in the time of Lot and saved just a few and it will be similar when Christ returns. Listen to First Thessalonians 2, 5, 2, and 3. I, meant, I read verse 2 earlier. You yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. So when Christ is revealed, some will be saved, as Noah and Lot were, and some will be judged. And that day is, as Jesus says at the end of verse 30, Luke 17, the day that the Son of Man is revealed. And this word revealed is apocalypto. Sound familiar? Get the word apocalyptic from it, referring to the end times of great destruction. It's the same root word as the opening of the book of Revelation. Revelation begins this way. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things which must soon take place. So Christ has revealed himself in the book of Revelation. He's going to reveal himself when he comes in great power and glory and judgment. Jesus is hidden in heaven now. The Apocalypto has the idea of something being revealed that was hidden before. He's hidden in heaven now. We can't see him. But when he comes, it will be, again, great glory. He will reveal himself in great glory and judgment. And there will be no mistaking it at that point. But Jesus has uh, some warnings here about turning back. Luke seventeen thirty one says, On that day, again, when the Son of Man is revealed, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Something similar in Matthew 24 and, and Mark. But this portion of Luke has a different focus than Matthew and Mark's similar statements. If you read what Matthew and Mark say, they refer to the tribulation when the abomination of desolation comes and also the destruction of Jerusalem. While Luke's here in Luke 17 refers to the return of Christ. So the different times in history. 
But there are also cases when you've got to be ready, and you can't go back and get your stuff. You need to just run. In this case, when you know Christ is returning, it's too late. You can't go back into your house and get things. You can't return from the field to, to grab anything. Christ has come. It's too late. Now, it's maybe strange to talk about being on the housetop. You may know that in this period in history, houses generally had flat roofs, and they would be accessible by ladder or a, a stairway. We don't hang out on our housetops, do we? I wouldn't even dream of it being old and don't want to fall and kill myself. But uh, this was a important part of life back then. You would get on the housetop, and you'd be able to be out in the fresh air and enjoy some some meals and fellowship with people. And you can get away from the stifling heat inside. So you ever been in a an old sort of brick place with very few windows and the heat? Uh, no air conditioning, no no breezes blowing, really. You'd rather be up on the roof, wouldn't you? Even if it's hot outside, it's probably cooler than inside. At least you can have the breeze on your face. So people might be on the housetop uh, eating or, or fellowshipping. But when Christ comes, you have to be ready to leave. Oh, sorry. I think it's still pretty common in, in Israel as well, yeah. Mm-hmm. So life without air conditioning, I suppose. So Jesus is saying, if you're on the housetop, don't go inside and get your things. Uh, just go. Uh, if you are in the field, just go. I saw yesterday that you might have heard about the large wildfire up north near Skykomish. This is not the one that's down by where we had our church camp. This is another one, an even bigger one, I think, down uh, up north. And yesterday, an emergency alert went out. It said this, Go, no time for delay. Load up your family and pets and leave now. So don't be out there with your hose. Don't don't just wait. Don't even go and, and get a bunch of stuff out of your house. You go. You're going to escape uh, with your lives. Uh, that's all you should should have with you and your pets if, if you really want to. I shouldn't, have, I shouldn't have said that. That was mean. Yes, get your pets for sure. Leave now. I should have been serious. I apologize. Because we do get to a very serious verse here, Luke 17.32, one of the shortest verses in the Bible, but one of the most striking and one of the most serious, one of the most meaningful. Remember Lot's wife. Back to Genesis 19, verse 17. When they had brought them outside, that is, that the angels had brought Lot and his wife and daughters outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains, or you will be swept away. But it says in Genesis 19.26, Lot's wife from behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Lot's wife is a grim warning to us. We don't know much about her. We may see her in, in Genesis 14.16. When, remember when Lot was captured, and Abraham goes and rescues him? Uh, says that Abraham brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with all his possessions 
and also the women and the people. So it may well be that Lot's wife was with that group that was captured and taken up north by those kings, and Abraham rescued her. So presumably this woman, Lot's wife, we don't know her name, she knew Abraham and Sarah well. Lot was, after all, Abraham's relative. And presumably she also knew the promises that God had made to Abraham and Sarah. And she lived with her husband. Again, Peter called her called him righteous Lot. So she had this man in her life who was uh, at least somewhat righteous. This woman had a fair warning from the angels of God, and she had an advantage over all the other inhabitants of Sodom. The, the, all the people of Sodom did not get this warning from the angels. Only uh, Lot's family did. And yet, when she knew Sodom was being judged for its wickedness, and she was told not to look back, she disobeyed. And she was near safety. She was out of the city. She was near safety, but at the last moment she turned back. <clears throat> her heart was still in Sodom, it appears, and she paid the price for her wilderness and disobedience by being turned into a pillar of salt. So Jesus has a elaboration of this point about remember Lot's wife. Verse 33, whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Lot's wife wanted to keep her life in Sodom, but she died. She lost her life. Lot was instead willing to lose his life in Sodom, and he remained alive. So those who seek to keep their life, this worldly life, will lose it. Those who are willing to lose their their earthly life for Christ's sake will preserve it. Jesus continues, verse 34, I tell you, on that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place, one will be taken and the other will be left. And then verse 36 is in brackets, two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other will be left. And Jesus says in verse 34, I tell you, this will happen. And this emphasizes the importance of what he's saying. Pay attention. It's like, truly, truly, I say to you, uh, I tell you, listen, I'm saying something that's very important to you. By the way, verse 36, I said it was in brackets. It's probably not original with Luke. It's likely, likely taken from a similar passage in Matthew where Jesus mentions two men in the field. But in verse 34, it says there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. This picture is unique to Luke and probably indicates a husband and wife in this night. And then we have a daytime view, verse 35. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and the other will be left. So people, in this time, just as in Noah's day and in Lot's day, they'll be doing ordinary things when Christ returns, sleeping, working, doing all the things of life. But close relationships, it says here, will be forever broken. There'll be Perhaps a man and wife, one taken, the other left. Two women who work together, one taken, the other left. Now the question is, who is taken and who is left? What is this referring to? Many interpret this as referring to believers being taken in the rapture, Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 30, 31 says, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Again, we see this coming of Christ in great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, 
from one end of the sky to the other. So here's a gathering of those who follow Christ to be with him. Also, 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, verse 4. First Thessalonians 4, verse 15, Paul says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. So from Matthew 24 and, and 1 Thessalonians 4, we can imagine that those who are in the bed or, or working at the mill, the one who is taken is the one who belongs to Christ and will be taken to be with him. Some of you might remember the, the song from back in the 70s, I Wish We'd All Been Ready, that kind of traumatized a generation of kids in church. You guys know that song? Two men walking up a hill, one disappears and one's left standing still. I wish you'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. Some of you know it, anyway. Uh, you often mull over that at night. You know, am I really ready? Am I ready? But that's, that's one view, and that could well be the case. But there's an, another passage we could look at, Matthew 13. Matthew 13. Verse 40, Jesus has the parable of the, the wheat and the tares. The tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there's evidence for both uh, guesses, and, and the commentators will be on either side of this. Is the one taken, one who's taken to be with Christ, or is the one taken taken to judgment for their uh, rejection of Christ? Either could be the case. Can't say for sure. But the main lesson is, be ready, because when one's taken, the other's left, whether left to judgment or left to a glorious kingdom experience with Jesus Christ. One last verse in our passage, verse 37, Luke 17, verse 37 after Jesus has spoken all these words about being ready, they ask, the disciples that is, where Lord? And he said to them, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. So the Pharisees earlier on asked when, verse 20, the disciples asked where. And Jesus doesn't answer them, I don't think, in the way they expected. They probably wanted him to say Jerusalem or the Mount of Olives or some geographic location. Where is this going to happen when you're going to come back? But instead, he says, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Jesus says something similar in Matthew 24. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, if you have King James or New King James, it may say eagles. Where the eagles are the, the or where the body is, that the vultures or the eagles will gather. Now, the Greek word can refer to either of these, these birds, these large birds. But I think vultures is probably better because vultures are more associated with eating corpses. That's the idea here. We have these bodies that are dead, and the vultures will be gathered. So Jesus coming, he said earlier, will be as obvious as when lightning flashes across the sky. 
And the place will be as obvious as finding a rotting corpse by looking for vultures. If you were doing a search and rescue, sad to say, you might look for where a, a body would be based on where you might see some carrying, carrying birds gathering. They'll help you find the body. Similar, similar way. Where will Christ return? Well, where the corpses are, the vultures will be gathered. It will be obvious to you where, where Jesus is returning. And there are overtones of judgment in this as well. Listen to Revelation 19, verses 17 and 18. I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, both small and great. So there's a great judgment when the carrion birds will be called to to eat of the, the the bodies that have died as a judgment of their rebellion against Christ. Well, this is a very sobering passage, and there's a number of lessons, but the main lesson, of course, is be ready. Be ready. Jesus has already said in Luke 12, verse 40, You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. For those who know Christ, his return will be a glorious, wonderful event. But for those who don't know Christ, it will be a time of judgment. And so I will ask all of you, are you prepared for the return of Christ? You might remember the parable of the landowner in Luke 12. And there was a rich man who has, has much and he wants to tear down his barns and build bigger ones. And he says, I will say to my soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We don't have a guarantee of another meal, another time to eat, drink, and be merry, to to marry ourselves or to, uh, to be given a marriage, to build, to tear down. We don't know what our lives will hold when Christ might come back. And so we must be ready now to follow him, to believe in him. We don't want anyone here to be like Lot's wife, who is close to the truth, but is still uh, still has a, a heart that yearns for the pleasures of sin. And you're here today. That means you have heard the word of God week after week after week. You are at least close to the truth, if you haven't embraced it yourself, you've heard the truth yourself. Like the the wife of Lot has heard the word of God, the, the threats of judgment of God, and yet her heart was still in Sodom. And so when the judgment came, she was swept into it because she was not ready. Her heart was not ready. So let me ask again, what priority will you place on earthly things versus heavenly things? Are you willing to lose your earthly life to gain eternal life with Christ? If you haven't trusted Christ and believed in him, if you're not ready for Christ, repent and ask him to save you. Because he did suffer, as it says earlier, he suffered for the sins of his people. When he he came, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. He did that to save us, yet we must believe in him in order to receive that salvation. So for those who don't know Christ, there's one application, be ready. But for those of us who do know Christ, if we're confident that when... Christ comes back, we will go to be with him. We still have things to do. We, we are not just let off the hook by this passage. 
there are several things we must do, those who know Christ. First of all, be eager. Be eager. Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We wait for Christ's return with great eagerness. But we must also be patient. We are longing for its coming, but we must be patient. James 5, 7 and 8 says this, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. So we would love to have Christ come back today, but he may not. It may be another day, maybe another year, maybe a thousand years from now. But until that happens, we must be patient, and we must keep working, keep planting, keep looking for the produce of the soil, being patient for Christ's return, and doing what we have to do until then. We also need to be alert and sober. Be alert and sober. First Thessalonians 5, 4-8. to <clears throat> But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day, that is the day of the Lord the day of Christ's return, would come like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness, so let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, that is serious about your, your work, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation." So as we wait for Christ to come back, we are alert, waiting for his coming, and sober, doing, again, the work we have to do with with great diligence, with with great seriousness, because we have a serious work to do. Another thing we, we must do is to be joyful, even in suffering, as we wait for Christ. Be joyful, even in suffering. 1 Peter 4.13 says, To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. So we rejoice whether we suffer, we rejoice in glory as well. When Christ is revealed in glory, we ourselves rejoice with exultation, knowing that suffering is worth it. He himself suffered for us, we suffer with him, and that suffering will be set aside when he comes back. The one last application for us all, to be holy. Be holy. First John 2.28 Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. This is a good way of thinking about our our activities. If Christ came back right now, would I be ashamed if Jesus saw me doing this? Obviously, he sees us no matter what we do anyway. But if Jesus came back, I want to be found uh, studying God's word, praying, uh, sharing the gospel, uh, taking care of my family, uh, working diligently, doing any number of good things for his sake. I don't want the memory of Christ when he comes back to be, I was doing something that was wicked, I was I was being angry, or I was looking at something that was wrong on my computer. Those kinds of things help restrain you from sin, thinking, if Christ could come back right now, do I want to shrink away from him in shame at his coming? I want my first view of Christ to be, you've come, Lord Jesus, I'm so glad to see you. Not, oh, I wish you'd come a a few minutes later, a few minutes earlier. I don't want to be sinning when Christ comes back. So be holy. Think about that when you're doing something that, or being tempted to do something that is is unrighteous. 
would Christ, would I be glad to see Christ if he came right now? In Colossians 3, 4, and 5 says this, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, there's that word revealed again, when Christ is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And then Paul has a conclusion, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead, to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. So as we think about Christ returning, it should not focus us on doing whatever we want to, to indulging ourselves in this life, to to have fun while we can in a sinful way, but rather to consider our bodies as dead to these evil things because Christ is going to come back and we're going to be glorified and made holy with him. Let's close in prayer. Father, again, these are sobering words from the lips of Christ. We grieve to think of those who will not be ready when he returns, who will be indulging their sins or even be doing good things, righteous things from your hand and yet they won't be ready for your return. May we be ambassadors to those who need to hear this word, and even for those who might be here today who don't know Christ, who are not ready for his return. May they be made ready by faith in Christ through the word of Christ being spoken. May no one leave here until they know for sure that they're going to go be with the dear Savior. And for those of us who are eagerly looking forward to your return, may we even be more eager. May we be holy. May we be joyful. May we be alert. May we do all the things that we ought to do that your coming would be a glorious day for us all. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.